want to speak to you this morning on the story from the gospel reading. It's an interesting story in itself, but it's also a special story. And what makes it special? Well, what makes it special are the three most important things about Bible study. Location, location, location. Location in Scripture. What comes before and what comes after. Location in time, the general time frame question. And then location in place, knowing about the culture, society, the legal, economic status of the world around the, the, the passage. But the most important and the easiest is Scripture. What comes before and what comes after. On Thursday, the Northeast Deanery met and, and Bishop Neal told us that just when you feel that if you say it one more time, you'll fall into some kind of catatonic coma from the pure boredness of saying it over and over again, go ahead and say it. And then the next time you say it, it will sink into the DNA of the congregation. I think maybe it's starting to sink into the DNA of the congregation. Location, location, location. And the easiest one is location in Scripture. John chapter 21, what comes before? John chapter 21, John chapter 20. And John chapter 20 ends with this, these two verses. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. And then we have John chapter 21. Oh wait, there's one more story. I gotta tell you one more story. I've only selected a few stories, but these are the ones I've selected. But wait, there's one more. That's what tells you that it's a special story. The early church fathers noticed what Eddie pointed out last uh, week, that chapter 21 seems to be an appendage to the gospel. And, 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 and they explained it this way. This is what the early church fathers said. They compared what John is doing here to, to, to Luke. And they said Luke's gospel, think about Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is about what Jesus did. John's gospel is about who Jesus is. You see the distinction? The point of Luke is to say this is what Jesus did. And that's, in fact, that's what Luke says in Luke chapter 1. This is an account of the things that happened among us. And, um, and John is telling us who Jesus is. In fact, that's what I just read. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So Luke is telling us what Jesus did. John is telling us who Jesus is. And then we have the sequel. In Acts, Luke tells us what the church did. And in John chapter 21... We're told what the church is. Acts tells us what the church did. John chapter 21 is a picture of what the church is. Now, at first, that might sound kind of hokey. But the more you think about it, it kind of makes sense. And maybe those old guys knew what they were talking about back then. That what we're reading when we read John chapter 21 is a, is a picture of what the church is. There's a weird thing we say every Sunday. We'll say it this Sunday. It's in the Nicene Creed, and it's pretty weird. We say, we believe in God. Well, that's not weird, okay. Religious people get together, you can expect something to be said about God, okay. We believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that's not weird. Christians are supposed to believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, that could get weird. Some people don't want to believe too much in the Holy Spirit. You don't know what might happen. But then we get to the part that's really weird. We say, we believe in the church. And now that's weird. 
the Nicene Creed says, the holy, one holy Catholic church. That word Catholic, even on our screen, will have an asterisk next to it telling us that it's, it's universal. The ancient church used that word to refer to what's common among all Christians. The Nicene Creed comes out of a time before there's a split and divisions between Christians. It's, a, it's an account of what Christians have believed at all times. And we say we believe in the church. Well, I mean, we said we believe in God, and we know there are people out there who don't believe in God. I know there are atheists out there. At CF, we had, uh, uh, for, for about three years, we had an atheist stu- club, a, a student club of atheists. They met every Wednesday at 1230 in Building 8, Room 108, and talked about how they didn't believe in God. I could never figure out why they would do such a thing. I mean, nice kids, smart kids, um, don't have a problem with them, but I, I just never could figure it out. Why would you meet every week for an hour and 15 minutes and talk about, what, about how you don't believe that something exists? I mean, I don't believe the Easter Bunny exists, but I can't imagine sitting around in a room every Wednesday at 1230 talking about, sorry, Ken, he doesn't exist, um, talking about how the Easter Bunny doesn't exist. And what would be the point? Can you imagine going into a bookstore We'll just stop there. Can you imagine going into a bookstore? Can you imagine going into a bookstore and there's a section called Spirituality and there's a book, The Easter Bunny Delusions and it's 250 pages and you pull it off and line by line by line the scholar has shown the arguments about why the Easter Bunny doesn't exist and you say, wow, this is a really interesting book. I've got to get all my friends to read this. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't see the point. But, but um, I know there are atheists but there, are there people who, who, who don't believe in the church? Are there a-churchists? People who say the church doesn't exist. Obviously that word believe is being used in two different senses here. We say we believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the church. That word believe just isn't an intellectual recognition of existence. But it implies trust and confidence and faith and hope. We put our trust in the church. We put our confidence in the church. We put our faith in the church. We put our hope in the church. Nobody's laughing. Don't you go to the same church as I go to? We put our trust in the church, our confidence in the church, hope in the church, faith in the church. But when you put it that way, there are lots of people who don't believe in the church. The Pew Foundation released, I guess, about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, its social, social science study of religion in America. Pew Foundation is a big bunch of money, and they have a component that studies religion. And, um, uh, and, and this year, the, the, number, the number of people who said their religion was none, N-O-N-E, none, uh, reached 23%. And that number goes up every year that the that poll is, um, that survey is released and uh, it's in all the headlines and everybody on the TV and the, and the newspapers think it's a great thing because they think that means that religion is dying out in America. But when you dig down into the numbers, by far most people who say they have none, their religion is none, believe in God. More than half believe that Jesus is a way to salvation. I'm not saying that's adequate, but it's a good start. More than half believe that the Bible contains divine wisdom. I'm not saying that's adequate, but that's a good start. 
What does that mean? It means that these people who say their religion is none actually are religious people. They just don't want anything to do with the church. And you don't have to walk very far in Gainesville to find someone who'll say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you met those people? Good people sometimes. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What do they mean? They say, well, I believe in God and stuff, but uh, I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with the church. Something interesting about belief in the church is that belief in the church is not helped by more exposure to it. I mean, when you recognize God and you start to, to, to think about God, the more you think about God, the more you express, experience God, the greater your faith in God grows. When you meet Jesus and say, I'm going to walk beside and behind him, I'm going to follow him wherever he goes, the more you walk with Jesus, the more your faith grows. The more you try to live in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the more your faith and trust and confidence in the Holy Spirit grows. But the more time you spend around church, the less you want to believe in it. Because the church is a mess. And it's always been that way. Every once in a while I hear somebody say, I just wish we could get back to the early church where there weren't so many divisions. And I say, have you read the New Testament? There are divisions all over the place. Luke hints at that in our Acts reading this morning. Luke hints at a huge split in the church, which was so recent to him, it was painful for him to talk about it. He doesn't address it directly, but he addresses it indirectly all the time, all over the place. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's driven a group of believers called the Way out of Jerusalem. They've scattered, and now he's going to Damascus to hunt down those Christians. Meanwhile, the apostles are sitting back in Jerusalem. Paul isn't bothered about them at all. The apostles are saying Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul says, well, we can talk about that at synagogue. There's another group of of Christians, Stephen, Philip, those who are called deacons in Acts chapter 6, who are saying Jesus is the Messiah of everybody. It's that group who are going to Samaria and telling the Samaritans, Jesus is your Messiah too. Philip is the guy who meets an Ethiopian eunuch and says, Jesus is your Messiah too. And that's what the split is. And it's going to have to take Cornelius and Peter and Father Alex preached about that three weeks ago to get the apostles on the same team with that other group. That's a deep division. Is Jesus Jesus of everybody or Jesus of the Jewish people? That's a big split. It was three or four years in the lasting. It's been like that from the beginning. And that's been my experience. Many of you know my father is a pastor and I'm 51 years old. So I've got about 49 years experience of hearing about problems in the church. I have memories of sitting in the hallway surreptitiously listening to my father on the phone with somebody talking about church problems. Was I supposed to say that, Sam? You did that? No, she never did that. Church is full of problems. Yet I still believe in the church. And John chapter 21 tells me why. The first thing was the church to do. The church is to be about fishing, fishing for people. Jesus is concerned about fishing from the moment he meets the disciples 
Why? Because the disciple, a group of disciples were fishermen. And when he called them, he used the language of their work to call them to the God's kingdom. He walks by one day, one day, he sees them, he says, hey, you guys catch fish? I'll teach you how to fish for people. Jesus cares about our jobs. Jesus cares about our vocation. In fact, that word vocation means calling. We pray, pray in, in our prayers of the people, for people who labor for our common good, that their work will reflect God's kingdom. Jesus comes to the disciples in their work as fishermen. And Jesus' first call of them is, I will make you fishers of men. He connects their call to be fishermen to the kingdom of God. He connects their call to work as fishermen to their call to work in the kingdom of God. There's something about fishing which is like the kingdom of God. Now, it is a bit of a stretch. And the analogy won't bear much weight. After all, the work of being a fisherman is aimed at killing fish and making a profit from selling their corpses. That's not what Jesus had in mind. But something about their work reflects their call to the kingdom. Imagine, just imagine, and I want you to, imagine if Jesus' first group of disciples had been his fellow carpenters. And he shows up at the work site one day and he, he watches them for a minute and he says, we carpenters, we already know how to frame doors. I'm going to show you how to build a door to bring people into the kingdom of God. Or what if Jesus' first disciples were lawyers? And Jesus said, you like to study the law? I'm going to tell you what the law points to. The law points to a lawgiver. What would Jesus' call be to the disciples if the disciples were a group of customer service managers at Publix? Think about it. What would it be? Take the time and imagine that. Use the language of the job. What, what would God's call the kingdom be to a retired teacher? Or a painter? In both senses. An artistic painter? A house painter? What if Jesus' disciples were stay-at-home moms? What kind of wording would Jesus use to issue that call? Or if they were roofers, like we had out here fixing our roof? Or this one's interesting. What if Jesus' first group of disciples were pastors? Or what if the disciples were unemployed? Or what if they were prisoners in prison for a crimes that, yeah, they committed? Or what if Jesus' group of disciples were slaves in a brick kiln in India? What would the language of the job be to call them into the kingdom? And then, what would God's call to you look like in the words of the language of your job and what you do? Because something about your work reflects something about the kingdom of God and your call to build it. But there's even more going on here than that, as, as important, I think, as that is. There's even more. The ancient world is a symbolic world. Maybe it's more symbolic than the world we live in, or maybe just because we live in the world, we don't see all the symbols, but, we, but they interact with us unconsciously. But, but in the ancient world, water is scary. 
And in the ancient Mediterranean world, at least, water is scary. It's not scary to everybody, but the further you are away from the water, the scarier the water is. And remember, the ancient Hebrew people are a desert people, and the sea is scary. Here's this little nautical ditty. Join in when you recognize the song. I am a Jewish sailor and I sail the seven seas. My ship is fitted with the best. You don't know that song? It doesn't exist. There aren't any songs about great heroic Jewish sailors. There are no songs like that. We read today about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. It's smaller than Orange Lake. Two Jewish guys in the Bible go sailing. Jonah and Paul. Jonah ends up in a whale's belly. Paul ends up in a shipwreck. Now, I'm having fun with that idea, but there's a serious level, too. What what happens in Genesis 1, right at the start, the Spirit of God moves on the face of the water. And then what happens? Out of the water comes order. Or think about what Job has to say about the ocean. It's a scary place. It's full of sea monsters, monsters, leviathans. Or how many times do the Psalms talk about the depths? We're trapped in the depths. It's chaotic. What does it mean to be fishers of men? Well, I think if you ask most Christians, what does it mean to be fishers of men? They would say something like, well, that means we, we tell people about Jesus and they get saved. We make converts. Well, okay, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. But think, think, think about it a little bit. What happens to fish when you catch them? They move from one realm to another. They move from one world to another. In the symbolic world, they move from chaos to structure. Or how Paul put it, to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And to catch fish, you have to have, to have, you have, to have a different place to take them to. And that's what the church is. Think of the church as an alternative community. An alternative city within the city. An alternative county within the county. Jesus talked about believers being in the world but not of the world. Think of the city, the church as in the city of Gainesville but not of the city of Gainesville. Think about the city of Gainesville and the church in Gainesville. But what you mean, not just individual parishes, but all the churches together, the church in Gainesville. What should it look like? Well, first, it should look like Gainesville. Not that every individual parish needs to be split up into demographic groups that exactly match the demographics of of Gainesville, but that together there's a place for everybody to fit. That's big. And how would the church interact with the city as an alternative city? Because we live in a place of generosity. Gainesville tends to be a generous place. But it's not generous in the way that the church was generous in Acts. As you read the book of Acts, you don't read a lot about people giving other people money. What you hear is sharing with people. And that's a different attitude. That's a different mindset. Think about Think about Grace Marketplace. 
people in the city of Gainesville drive past Grace Marketplace and say, oh, what's that? They go home and Google it, and they read about outreach to the homeless and, and all the things that go on at Grace Marketplace. And um, the people in the city of Gainesville say, many of them say, I think that's great. I'm going to go to PayPal and send them 50 bucks, $100. And that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that's good. But the church, people in the church see Great Marketplace, and they say, let's go there Saturday afternoon after church and meet some people, talk to people. Or adult education programs, getting people through GED programs. People in the city of Gainesville read about, about adults who need to get GED so they can break through into the, into the workforce. And they say, that's great. I'm going to write a letter to my county commissioner and say, I think their budget needs to be increased. People in the church of Gainesville read about adult literacy program, adult education programs, and they say, hey, I was good in math. I could, I could tutor a math class. They say, I could sit in a reading circle with some students and help them learn to read more smoothly and to remember what they read and to understand what they read. I can do that. I, I, can, I can tutor a history class. Or think about an approach to public policy issues. Maybe someone notices that the public schools in Alachua County and in Marion County, where I live, that the, that they have a maintenance problem. People in the city of Gainesville begin talking about it. And people in the city of Gainesville say, well, we're a virtuous city. And we, the virtuous majority, say that there should be a one-penny sales tax increase to pay to maintain our public schools because we love our children. And if someone should dare to say, well, I, th I think we need to maintain the schools too, but you know, do we really need to raise taxes? Why don't, we, why don't we cut the budget somewhere else? The virtuous majority grabs them by the collar and says, look, buddy, you're going to pay your taxes. You don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. You go to jail, you lose your job. You lose your job, your family's out on the street. Are you going to pay your taxes or not? And the minority says, okay, man, I'll pay the tax, man. Don't put me in jail. And the virtuous majority says, I thought you would see things our way. Have you noticed the, major the majority is always virtuous when you're, in when, when you're in it? What if? What if? But the people, but that's how the city, the people in the city of Gainesville think about things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pay sales taxes, okay? That's, that's how the people in the city of Gainesville think about things. People in the church of Gainesville get up on Saturday morning and go get with Justice Smith over at Littlewood and clean out the gutters. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it would be if the maintenance of public schools became a general topic of conversation and all the churches in Gainesville got together and said, look, we'll, we'll split it up by the, by the size of our churches into five or ten churches apiece and, and, and one group will take Buchholz and one group will take Littlewood and we'll take care of the maintenance problem. Let's not resort to violence and taxation and all that stuff. Just, we'll do it. We don't need to go through all that. We'll do it. What if that happened? What if a picture of, something, of tackling a public policy issue as a church instead of a city, how would that change the way the city perceives the church? 
I'm not saying it's wrong to, 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 to activate for, for sales taxes or something. I'm saying it's a difference in approach. You understand what I'm saying? It's a difference in approach. What if we approached public policy issues as a church instead of a city? I mean, just think about it. I mean, the church is a new realm. It's a new world. It's a new kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. It's time for God to be king. What would it be like if there was an alternative city in Gainesville where God was the king? Well, fishing means bringing people into the kingdom. But, but notice some interesting things about this story. John, the beloved disciple, when they hit the jackpot and catch all those fish, John says, it is the Lord. Why does John know that it's the Lord? Because John had seen almost exactly the same thing happen before in a story in Luke 5. In that story, Jesus is teaching and all the people are crowding up on him so he, he gets in, his, in the boat and they pull away from the shore and Jesus teaches from the, from the boat and then they take off to the other side of the lake. And while the, oh, the Sea of Galilee, while they, while they sail across the Sea of Galilee, then they decide to go fishing and uh, all night long they, they fish on one side of the, the, the boat, they don't catch anything and Jesus says, put the net out on the other side of the boat and they catch a whole bunch of fish. And when John saw that, he said, I remember when that happened before. That's Jesus. But notice, the first time it happened, Jesus was in the boat. But this time, Jesus is away. And he's even unrecognized. What does this mean to say that Jesus isn't in the boat anymore? It means he's risen from the dead and ascended. Or he will shortly. But even though he's no longer in the boat... He still guides and directs us. Even if we don't recognize that he's the one who's guiding and directing us, he still guides and directs us. And that should be a great comfort to us. We aren't alone, even if Jesus is not with us in the boat anymore. Well, I extended the gospel reading to include very quickly the other parts of what the church does. It restores broken fellowship. You see how Jesus and uh, Peter are reconciled, how they work through their conflict and they're reconciled, and, and Peter is left with the, the command to feed my sheep. That's something else the church does. But then, very interesting at the end, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and follow me. And then we have the parenthetical explanation, this was a reference to the way that Peter would die. Jesus had earlier said, take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound so bad. But there's no escaping what it means to stretch out your hands and follow me. It's easy to minimize, take up your cross. You've heard this phrase, everyone has a cross to bear. But the cross to bear isn't arthritis or male pattern baldness or something like that. Crosses are where people are crucified. Stretch out your hands and follow me. What would it be like for a church in a city to say we're willing to sacrifice and be crucified. And that's another reason to believe in the church, despite all the problems of it. It's called to follow Jesus. And despite all the problems, for the most part, it continues to do so, even if following Jesus leads into persecution. John 21 tells us some things about what it means to be a church. Now, I'd like us to think about what it would mean for there to be another city which would recognize God as the king 
How would it change things if the church was the church? In Jesus' name, amen.